Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. The U.S. Senate recently passed the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, law that the media is calling an anti-Asian hate crimes bill. It's mainly about crime statistics and information gathering by the federal government. It includes grants to local governments to supply information to the federal government about bias-motivated crimes committed in the previous year. During Senate deliberations, though, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas proposed an amendment to the bill that said, quote, no institution of higher education may receive any federal funding if the institution has a policy in place or engages in a practice that discriminates against Asian Americans in recruitment, applicant review, or admissions. That amendment ultimately was designed to prohibit the use of race as a factor in university admissions. And in practice, the consideration of race and admissions at elite schools often means Asian American applicants have a higher academic bar for admission than other groups. This has led Asian American students to file lawsuits against their universities, including a recent high-profile lawsuit against Harvard. Senator Cruz's proposed amendment was defeated on a 49-48 party-line vote. The whole issue of race and university admissions is one of the major fault lines in American politics. The terms of debate for that issue that we have today go back almost a half century to the case of the University of California versus Baki in 1978. Alan Baki applied for admission to the medical school at the University of California, Davis, and he was denied twice. At that time, Cal Davis admitted 100 students into its entering medical school class. Of those 100 seats that they had available, 16 of them were set aside for minority students. The medical school then ran two separate admissions programs. There was a general admissions pool from which 84 students were selected. Then there was a special admissions pool specifically for economically or educationally disadvantaged members of minority racial groups from which the remaining 16 students were selected. The regular admissions pool had a minimum GPA requirement of 2.5, and candidates were then given a score based on their grades, MCAT scores, letters of recommendation, and interview performance. The special admissions program had no minimum GPA requirement, and candidates were also given scores, but they didn't have to compete against those in the regular admissions pool. Baki was just below the cutoff score in the regular admissions pool each of the years that he applied, and in each of those years, some of the students in the special admissions pool had significantly lower overall scores than he did. In one of the years, several of the special admissions spots even remained unfilled because of a lack of qualified candidates. Baki then sued Cal Davis, argued that the admissions program discriminated against students on the basis of race, contrary to the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and contrary to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which says that no person on the ground of race or color shall be excluded from participating in any program receiving federal financial assistance. Baki won at the trial court level in California, and then he won again at the California Supreme Court. The University of California then petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to review the case, and the court agreed. The court said two things in that decision. First, the use of a rigid quota system in which 16 seats are reserved for disadvantaged members of minority groups and students in the different admissions programs are insulated from competition with each other is illegal and unconstitutional. It violates the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment. 
But second, universities nonetheless have a compelling interest in maintaining a racially diverse student body and may, for that reason, consider an applicant's race when making admissions decisions, so long as the university considers race in a holistic review of applications and doesn't insulate anyone from competition with others on the basis of their race. Baki was then admitted to the medical school at Cal Davis after this Supreme Court decision. He went on to become an anesthesiologist, and if my Googling skills are reliable, it looks like he's still practicing medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. Now, beyond that outcome, the case is complicated. No opinion was signed by more than a plurality of the justices, and they sharply disagreed about how we should understand the requirements of the Equal Protection Clause and the Civil Rights Act when it comes to these kinds of programs. In his plurality opinion for the court in Bakke, Justice Powell wrote that the guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual and something else when applied to a person of another color. If both are not accorded the same protection, then it is not equal, he wrote. And concurring in part and dissenting in part, Justice Blackman then wrote in response that in order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. There is no other way. And in order to treat some persons equally, we must treat them differently, he concluded. On the one hand, the Equal Protection Clause was clearly designed to require that everyone, regardless of race or color, will be subject to the same laws and the same punishments. But given the history that made the Equal Protection Clause necessary, history that included the systemic deprivation of education, property, and civic equality from many citizens on the basis of their race, Could we not then put in place a program that takes account of race and of educational and economic disadvantage? Isn't this, as Blackman says, one of the ways we can get beyond race? The court was divided on that question, as was the country, and the justices took the unique step of announcing each of the separate opinions from the bench, something that took over an hour for them to do. Here's a summary of Justice Powell's plurality opinion for the court. Note a couple of things. First, he says that if the state takes account of race in public policy, it must have a compelling interest to do so. You'll recognize that language from some of our other discussions. Points back to the basic framework the court has adopted in equal protection cases across a range of issues. If government policy discriminates against people based on a suspect classification, as the court calls it, then the government has to show that it has a compelling interest in doing so, compelling interest for its discrimination, and that it's pursuing its policy in a narrowly tailored way. Although Powell doesn't say narrowly tailored here, that is the analytic framework he is employing, and it's still the analytic framework the court uses when it considers the constitutionality of race-conscious university admissions programs. Second, note what the actual compelling interest is, achieving a diverse student body. And finally, note why the special admissions program was struck down in the first place because it was not a narrowly tailored way to achieve that compelling interest. Listen here. My reasoning is set forth fully in my written opinion, and as other justices will speak, I will merely make a brief conclusory summary. The Davis Special Admissions Program, with 16 of 100 seats, reserved exclusively for three categories of minorities, is a classification based on race. Our cases establish beyond question that a racial classification by a state agency is inherently suspect and must be subjected to the most exacting judicial scrutiny. Although adopted primarily to protect persons of the Negro race, 
the guarantee of the Equal Protection Clause by its terms protects all persons. It provides explicitly that no person shall be denied equal protection of the law. Despite this absolute language, our cases have held that some distinctions are justified, if necessary, to further a compelling state interest. Davis relies on several interests thought to be compelling. One is the desire to redress racial imbalance said to result from general societal discrimination against the minority groups selected for preferential treatment. But there is a complete absence on this record of any finding that this imbalance is traceable to discriminatory practices. Discrimination by society at large, with no determined effects, is not sufficient to justify petitioners' racial classification. In my view, the only state interest that fairly may be viewed as compelling on this record is the interest of a university in a diverse student body. This interest, encompassed within the concept of academic freedom, is a special concern of the First Amendment. But there has been no showing in this case that the Davis special program is necessary to achieve educational diversity. The Davis program totally excludes all applicants who are not Negro, Asian, or Chicano from 16 of the 100 seats in an entering class. No matter how strong their qualifications, qualitative and quantitative, including their own potential for contributing to educational diversity, they are not afforded the opportunity to compete with the applicants from the preferred groups for those 16 seats. At the same time, the preferred applicants have the opportunity to compete for every seat in the class. A university's interest in a diverse student body is not limited to ethnic diversity. Rather, its compelling interest in this respect encompasses a far broader array of qualifications and characteristics, of which race is only one. Justices Stevens, Stewart, and Rehnquist, on the other hand, thought this was simply racial discrimination, full stop, something that the Civil Rights Act forbids. They would have just struck down the policy on the basis of federal law and not even reached the constitutional question at all. The Chief Justice, Mr. Justice Stewart, Mr. Justice Rehnquist, and I are of the opinion that that action violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Section 601 of that act prohibits the exclusion of any person on the ground of race from any program receiving federal financial assistance. The Davis Medical School is such a program. The language of the statute is exceptionally plain. It provides, quote, no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. The legislative history of the statute makes it clear that Congress meant exactly what it said. 
During the lengthy debates, opponents of the legislation expressed the concern that the act would be read as mandating racial quotas in racially balanced colleges and universities. In response, those supporting the legislation gave repeated assurances that the act would be colorblind in its application. One supporter of the act expressed this position in these words, quote, The basic fairness of Title VI is so clear that I find it difficult to understand why it should create any opposition. Private prejudice, to be sure, cannot be eliminated overnight. However, there is one area where no room at all exists for private prejudices. That is the area of governmental conduct. As the first Mr. Justice Harlan said in his prophetic dissenting opinion in Plessy against Ferguson, our Constitution is colorblind. So I say to senators, must be our government. Title VI closes the gap between our purposes as a democracy and our prejudices as individuals. The cuts of prejudice need healing. The costs of prejudice need understanding. We cannot have hostility between two great parts of our people without tragic loss in our human values. In words that would be paraphrased and repeated throughout the congressional debates, Senator Pastore, the floor manager of the bill, clearly stated the intent of Congress. Title VI will guarantee that the money collected by colorblind tax collectors will be distributed by federal and state administrators who are equally colorblind. We cannot ignore the plain language in the legislative history and in the statute itself. The simple rule set forth in the statute is not qualified by any words that say, in substance, that the prohibition against racial discrimination shall apply only if the racial discrimination is also unconstitutional. In order to interpret this unusually clear colorblind statute, there is no need to decide whether the Constitution is also colorblind. Upholding the other poll in this debate were Justices Marshall, Brennan, Blackman, and White. Listen to Justice Brennan's analysis of equal protection in light of the history between the ratification of the 14th Amendment and Bakke's case in 1978. Our discussion of the constitutional question takes up the second half of our opinion. It opens with a history of our national betrayal of our founding principle that all men are created equal. For candor requires acknowledgment that the framers of our Constitution to forge the 13 colonies into one nation openly compromised this principle of equality with its antithesis, slavery. The consequences of this compromise are well known. They've been aptly called our American dilemma. Thus, we think it well to recount how brief the time has been, if it has yet come, when the promise of our principles has flowered into the actuality of equal opportunity for all, regardless of race or color. The 14th Amendment, the embodiment in the Constitution of our abiding belief in human equality, has been the law of our land for only slightly more than half of our 200 years as a nation. And for half of that half, the equal protection clause of the amendment was largely moribund. 
Worse, the clause was early turned against those whom it was intended to set free, condemning them to a separate but equal status before the law, a status always separate but seldom equal. Not until 1954, only 24 years ago, was this odious doctrine interred by our decision in Brown v. Board of Education. Brown won in its progeny, which proclaimed that separate schools and public facilities of all sorts are inherently unequal and forbidden under our Constitution. Even then, inequality was not eliminated with all deliberate speed. In 1968 and again in 1971, we were forced to remind school boards of their obligation to eliminate racial discrimination root and branch. And a glance at our docket and those of lower courts even today will show that officially sanctioned discrimination is not a thing of the past. Against this background, claims that law must be colorblind or that the datum of race is no longer relevant to public policy must be seen as aspiration rather than as descriptive of reality. This is not to denigrate aspiration, but reality rebukes us that race has too often been used by those who would stigmatize and oppress minorities. Yet we cannot, and as our opinion attempts to demonstrate, need not, under our Constitution, let colorblindness become myopia, which masks the reality that many created equal have been treated within our lifetimes as inferior, both by the law and by their fellow citizens. The assertion of human equality is closely associated with a proposition that differences in color or creed, birth or status, are neither significant nor relevant to the way in which persons should be treated. Nonetheless, the position that such factors must be constitutionally an irrelevance, summed up by the shorthand phrase, our Constitution is colorblind, has never been adopted by this Court as the proper meaning of the Equal Protection Clause. Finally, Justice Marshall, the first black Supreme Court justice and an important member of the NAACP's litigation team, who successfully argued the case of Brown versus Board of Education before the court. Listen to his analysis here. I agree with the judgment of the court, with this court, only insofar as it permits a university to consider the race of an applicant in making admissions decisions. I do not agree that petitioner's admissions program violates the Constitution. For it must be remembered that during most of the past 200 years, the Constitution, as interpreted by this Court, did not prohibit the most ingenious and pervasive forms of discrimination against the Negro. Now, when a state acts to remedy the effects of that legacy of discrimination, it cannot, I cannot believe that this same Constitution <coughs> stands as a barrier. 350 years ago, the Negro was dragged to this country in chains to be sold into slavery. And the system of slavery brutalized and dehumanized both master and slave. And the implicit protection of slavery was embodied in the Declaration of Independence 
and was made explicit in the Constitution. The individual states likewise established the machinery to protect the system of slavery through the promulgation of the slave codes, which were designed primarily to defend the property interest of the owner in his slave. The position of the Negro slave as mere property was then confirmed by this court in Dred Scott against Sanford. The status of the Negro as property was officially erased by his emancipation at the end of the Civil War. But the long-awaited emancipation while freeing the Negro from slavery did not bring him citizenship or equality in any meaningful way. Despite the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Negro was systematically denied the rights that those amendments were supposed to secure. The combined actions and inactions of the state and federal governments maintained Negroes in a position of legal inferiority for another century after the Civil War. The Southern states took the first steps. The immediately following the end of the Civil War, many of the provision, provisional legislatures passed black codes similar to the slave codes, which, among other things, limited the right of the Negroes to own or rent property and permitted imprisonment for breach of employment contracts. Congress responded to these legal disabilities by enacting the Reconstruction Acts and the Civil Rights Acts. Thus, for a time back there, it seemed as if the Negro might be protected from the continued denial of his civil rights and might be relieved of the disabilities that prevented him from taking his rightful place as a free and equal citizen. That time, however, was short-lived. Reconstruction came to a close, and with the assistance of this court, the Negro was rapidly stripped of his new civil rights. The court began by interpreting the civil law amendments in a manner that sharply curtailed their substantive protections. Then, in the notorious civil rights cases, the court strangled Congress's efforts to use its power to promote racial equality. The court's ultimate blow to the Civil War amendments and to the equality of Negroes was, of course, Plessy against Ferguson. And in upholding that Louisiana law, they said that, quote, equal but separate accommodations for whites and Negroes. The court held that the 14th Amendment was not intended to abolish distinctions upon color or to enforce social as distinguished from political equality or commingling of the two races among terms unsatisfactory to either, end of quote, ignoring totally the realities of the positions of the two races. Mr. Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion recognized the bankruptcy of the court's reasoning. He expressed his fear that if like laws were enacted in other states, quote, the effect would be in the highest degree mischievous, end of quote. The fears of Mr. Justice Harlan were soon to be realized. In the wake of Plessy, many states began to expand their Jim Crow laws 
which had up until that time been limited primarily to passenger trains and schools. The segregation of races was extended to residential areas, parks, hospitals, theaters, waiting rooms, and bathrooms, you name it. The enforced segregation of the races continued into the middle of the 20th century. Both World Wars, Negroes were for the most part confined to separate military units. It was not until 1948 that an end to segregation in the military was ordered by President Truman. And the history of the exclusion of Negro children from white public schools is too well known and recent to require repeating here. That Negroes were deliberately excluded from public graduate and professional schools and thereby denied the opportunity to become doctors, lawyers, engineers, and the like is too well established. The position of the Negro today in America is a tragic but inevitable consequence of centuries of unequal treatment measured by any benchmark of comfort or achievement Meaningful equality remains a distant dream for the Negro. A Negro child today has a life expectancy which is shorter by more than five years than of a white child. That's today. The medium income of the Negro family is only one-sixty percent of the median income of a white family. And the percentage of Negroes who live in families with incomes below the poverty line is nearly four times greater than that of whites. Today, when the Negro child reaches working age, he finds the American offers him significantly less than it offers his white counterpart. For Negro adults, the employment rate is twice that of whites, at least twice. And the unemployment rate for Negro teenagers is three to four times that of white teenagers. I'm talking about today. The relationship between these figures and the history of unequal treatment offered to the Negro cannot be denied, and I haven't heard it denied. At every point from birth to death, the impact of the past is related to the still disfavored position of the Negro. In light of the sorry history of discrimination and the devastating impact on the lives of our Negroes bringing the Negro into the mainstream of American life should be a state interest of the highest order. To fail to do so is to ensure that America will remain a divided society. I do not believe that the 14th Amendment requires us to accept that fate. Neither is history nor our past cases lend support to the conclusion that a university may not remedy the cumulative effects of society's discrimination by giving consideration to race in an effort to increase the number and percentage of Negro doctors in this country. After the case of California versus Baki, there were plenty of unanswered questions. How do we know when the compelling interest in diversity is satisfied? What if a race-conscious admissions program operates in practice like a quota system? Will there ever come a time in which race-conscious admissions are no longer necessary to achieve this compelling interest? What if a state passes a law to prohibit the use of race in university admissions? Could that itself be seen as a violation of the Equal Protection Clause?
We'll pick up some of these questions as we continue to think about the Equal Protection Clause on Thursday. Thank you.